to it was all worth it a podcast about passion and the things that drive people and that they build their lives around my name is still Eamon Dillon this is the last episode in the first season and possibly ever and it's funny that we're actually finishing on the topic that I'd actually intended to be the first episode honestly it was kind of the idea that actually inspired me to do the whole series in this episode I interview mules and men who are a bunch of professional musicians I've been around music and musicians my whole life and there's a fairly conventional piece of advice that you're likely going to hear a lot when you are a musician and it's that you're never going to make a living out of music. Now from my own personal experience I know that that isn't remotely true. Lots of people do make a full-time living out of music even in a country as small as Ireland where there are so many people who play. There's just such an abundance of live music or there was anyway back in the before times that lots of people do manage to turn it into a job. And even though it's true that music is definitely a way you can make a living from, it's also true that it's a very hard way to make a living. You need to be very good at hustling. You need to travel a lot. You need to keep weird antisocial hours and playing live shows with potentially hostile or at least disinterested crowds is a very weird working environment. You probably have to work so hard just to pay your bills that if you were in a normal middle-class profession, you'd probably have have done enough to have earned a management position. And yet lots of people still persist in doing it, either full-time or part-time, despite how hard it is. And taking the common sense approach into account, that's not really a very sensible thing to do. Now, the basic reason why people choose to do this is really obvious, like people love music. But I wanted to try and break that down a little bit more and talk about exactly what it is about music that people love so much that they're willing to make their own lives so much harder. The band that I talked to are a four-piece band from Dublin called Mules and Men. They're not a conventional rock band. They're actually a bluegrass band of all things. There's a surprisingly large roots in bluegrass scene in Ireland anyway. When I dreamed up this podcast in the first place, COVID-19 didn't exist. So it was it's coming out in a very different world to the one that we were in before when I was coming up with this idea. So obviously that changed a lot of the questions I had to ask and it changed a lot of the answers that the musicians gave me. I think answers I don't think they ever expected they'd be giving at any time in the past. Hello and welcome. I'm here today with Mules and Men, who are a bluegrass band of all things from Dublin. Uh, they've been playing together since about 2019 and they released their first album in August 2020 of this year. Luke, Lily, Nile, and Paddy, welcome. Thanks very much. Thank, Thank you, Eamon. Thank you. Thanks, Eamon. I got your names right, which I'm glad about. So you can all answer this in turn. Where are you all from? I am from Boyle in County Roscommon, a lovely little pocket of the country beside Lockheed. I am from Brighton, and I was born in the county hospital there. I am Niall from County Mayo, currently residing in County Kildare, outside of Kilcullen. And uh, I am Paddy from Dublin, from officially the best area in Dublin known as Drimna, a fantastic place. But I currently live in Donegal. Were any of your parents professional musicians, or was music in your family, or did your parents and families have more conventional jobs? Well, for me... Luke, that is. My family didn't play music before. I was drawn to music probably by my uh, friends at school and went from there. But there wasn't any fam- music in my family. Mm. And uh, Lily, perhaps you do have some music in your family. It's Definitely, definitely. I started off listening to electronic music. I went to a lot of raves 
when I went to visit my dad who lived in Dublin and he played bluegrass mandolin and he would always have people over for sessions and the French side of our family uh, were in various different bluegrass sort of roots bands and then I got my folky bluegrass uh, inspiration from him and from them and that coincided with my passion for all genres really definitely is what makes me play bluegrass now though. Brighton I know is a big music city but is it mostly electronic music and dance music in Brighton? There's not a, a bluegrass scene in Brighton it's not like Ireland there's nowhere like Ireland in terms of the pubs having live music in them acoustic live music in Brighton there would be live bands quite a lot of hip-hop a lot of dance music and the folk and bluegrass scene tend to derive from the Midlands and kind of spread into Brighton and it's kind of the tail end of it was hitting Brighton sort of lightly. But you still said that was mostly came from your dad who lived in Dublin that you got into that kind of music? Absolutely, yeah. What about the other two members, Niall or Paddy? Yeah, a good bit of music in my family. My father's side of the family, most of my uncles and aunts and my father play. And there would have been definitely music sessions when I was very small. And they would have listened to a lot of music in the house. And then they kind of would have been encouraging going to music lessons it was definitely a background of, of music there. But I didn't start really getting into it properly until I was about 14 or 15. And that was through, again, meeting friends and like joining bands, etc. I actually grew up with trad music and that's my still, I suppose, in one sense, that's still mainly what I do in a sense. I suppose mostly because there's just more trad music in Ireland than bluegrass. But I played trad music since I was nine years of age. And I don't mean to sound a bit wanky here, but I have trad music in my bloodline, but not actually in my upbringing in a sense, because my grandfather played the flute, but he died in 1965, way before I was even thought of. So I never actually met him. But my father then, his son, played a little bit of mandolin. And I would have grown up hearing him play a bit of Irish music. Now, you won't mind me saying, but he's not the best musician by any stretch of the imagination. And even though I was exposed to it, he never would have expected I would have ended up playing or anything. You know, he just kind of tinkered away in it for his own amusement. But then I got kind of got into it myself just because, well, I wasn't doing much with myself at nine years of age. So I said, sure, shows a few things on that. And the funny thing is, my ma's side of the family actually are all jazz musicians, both from like cousins, uncles, more like grand uncles, I should say. A few of them are actually full-time jazz musicians. But again, like, you know, I only started to reconnect with them in more recent years. I started playing bluegrass a few years ago, but um, up until then, up until about 2016, you know, I made me living off playing trap music and, and pretty much nothing else. Speaking of that, I'll start with you, Luke, on this one, because you're the only one who seemed to have no music in your family at all. Do you remember a moment where you realised music was really important to her, or was it more gradual? Like, was there like a threshold moment you heard a song or a particular band, or it kind of maybe overwhelmed you a little bit, or it was like something you knew you really, really wanted to know more about and put your time into? Yeah, I'll tell you. There was a mixture of factors, but probably one of the strongest there was that I actually got into skateboarding when I was about 13. Myself and a very good friend of mine, and we, uh, we used to go to like up to Sligo and we, we used to get like uh, tapes of like skateboarding videos. I remember very much uh, one of those videos that I got, it was called Zero, Dying to Live. And it uh, featured a skateboarder by the name of Jamie Thomas on it, who uh, I was a fan of from Tony Hawk's Pro Skater video games. And Jamie Thomas was a bit of a heavy metaler and he had like black hoodies on and, and you know, baggy jeans. 
And his theme song in the video was a song called Hallowed Be Thy Name by Iron Maiden. And I loved that song. And um, also Metallica were on that video. And I ended up getting into thrash metal when I was about 14 and started playing guitar as a result. And one of my best friends got into the drums and another one of my very best friends started playing guitar as well. And by the time I was 15, we had found a, he won't mind me saying it either, ropey bass player. And we had a little four piece band together and we played Slayer, Megadeth, Metallica, Motorhead, all that kind of stuff. I could make a quick point about maybe why I was interested in bluegrass as a result from thrash metal is that tempo-wise, the two genres are extremely similar. They've both got uh, backbeats that go very fast. Uh, if you listen to Ace of Spades by Motorhead and compare it to Bill Monroe playing uh, Salt Creek, you'll find that the tempos are very similar. <laughs> so it was, it, there's a certain intensity to the tempos that, that drew <laughs> People have said that people who like metal often, even if they don't like classical music, are similar personality-wise to people who like classical music. But say Hallow Be Thy Name is a really big, epic piece of music. It's a really, the, the adjective you'd use for that is like cavernous. How did you relate to that as a kid? How did it make you feel? I don't know. I don't know what it was. I think it was the energy in it, the different layers of dynamics and where it brought to you. I mean, up to that point, I was listening to Oasis. And when I was, re when I was like 11 or 12, I was listening to like Linkin Park and, you know, Sum 41 and all that kind of shit. And that didn't have that kind of epic, different layers to it, different places that in the one track it could bring you to over the course of eight or nine minutes. So it is, yeah, it is interesting to compare it with like uh, classical music or, I mean, it's progressive music. You could easily find yourself listening to uh, Steely Dan or um, Yes or King Crimson or that kind of stuff from there, you know, the kind of more complex instrument playing. I'll throw this out to any of you. Does anyone remember a kind of threshold moment? I definitely had a few moments, but I remember one time going to Galway and buying, I was kind of guilty of buying like greatest hit CDs, you know, just to get a taste of different bands. Like kind of, I didn't really know what an album was or it meant, you know, so yeah. I was just like buying music en masse. So, you know, CD shops were kind of great places to go when there were CD shops. But uh, I had a Jimi Hendrix, like double CD greatest hits and I had a pair of headphones. I remember the hour long drive coming home, I listened to about one CD and a half and just looking out the window and like I remember that being like Jesus Christ I'd need to get an electric guitar and do something it's what if you're at a good gig you get the feeling you can't really describe it, it when the music gets you that kind of thing from a very early age I knew that music was vitally important to me I'd say from about the age of six or seven I was listening to music and feeling that inside feeling that I feel actually regrettably probably not as much as I wish I did these days but mm. like there's that feeling that you know you don't even have to be a musician to feel it you hear a song you love that really speaks to you and it could be the most popular plastic song for some people and it could be a very intricate piece of music for others and anything in between but regardless I was feeling that from albums that I would have been listening to as a kid so I'm talking about Christy Moore's album Prosperous I'm talking about Dubliner's records things like that I think the moment where I was like Oh my God, trad music's unbelievable, was the track I heard, Raggle Taggle Gypsy on Christy Moore's Prosperous album, and Liam O'Flynn, the piper with Planksy, which that album was kind of a precursor to. He went into a tune called Towered Under Love. The rise into the pipes after that song just 
stirred something in me even at the age of seven or whatever it was now I wasn't even playing music at that point but I knew that music had obviously meant something to me and that I was probably curious enough to ask me dad a few years later to, to show me a few things on the mandolin but even then I wasn't thinking about becoming a full-time musician. I didn't think about becoming a full-time musician until I was in my mid-twenties. And even then I was only doing it because I thought, sure, I'll give it a shot. I just sort of fell into it and I just loved it. But in terms of music, yeah, that was always a part of me. But I mean, I was driving vans, doing deliveries before I became a full-time musician. And my attitude was, I'll give it a shot. And if not, I'll come back here in three months' time and I'll go back to my work. Lily, did you have a moment like that, actually? I've had many, actually, yeah. Like, I guess music was always a way that I connected with people and how I conversed from the very beginning. All of my friendships, pretty much, uh, the majority of friendships are based on shared love and appreciation of music. So for me, that was the foundation, really. From the age of nine, ten, is a connection and a language and a way of communication. I know that you said, you know, there was some music in your family, but that you weren't living in the same place as your dad at that time. So how did you learn to play? My mom was quite encouraging with getting me mandolin lessons when I was about 10. And she would drive me about 45 minutes from our house. It's quite late at 8 p.m. in the evening from Wednesday night and would bring me to a lady who I can't remember the name of. I would give her tunes that I knew that my dad played and I'd call him and say, oh, I'm going to learn a new tune. What tune should I learn? And he'd say, oh, for example, Blackberry Blossom. So I would ask her, could we learn that? And then she would very slowly teach me Blackberry Blossom over maybe a month of lessons. I stopped the mandolin lessons for a while and then I didn't have any lessons, but my dad did buy me a guitar when I was 14 and I would just play away. Paddy, coming from a trad background, would your learning have been similar? I'll tell you quickly, there's a very easy way for me to map it out. When I approached my dad to teach me the mandolin at the age of nine, you know, I didn't know anything about music and neither did he, God, because, of, you know, I was playing with my index finger for two years, but you had to remember at that age, I didn't care. Nobody else cared whether I kept playing music or not. And then I moved to the guitar when I was a little bit older, like about 11 or so. And that's what I really wanted to play. Beatles, Oasis, The Verve, all of that sort of stuff. My dad wanted to take mandolin lessons when I was 13. He wanted to take mandolin lessons himself out in uh, one of the cold this Kiltoriaren branches in Monkstown and he asked me would you like to do those mandolin lessons with me and I said no it's alright <laughs> and he says oh would you come on he says I'd like to do them and I don't want to go into the class on my own you know and I says alright go on I'll, I'll go in for you he says and then you see I actually took to it like a duck to water I actually loved it you know like within a week Frank Perry was my first teacher and he played banjo not mandolin well, it's the same fingering system, so we could use it. But when I saw him play banjo, I was like, Jesus, I need to get one of them. That sounds class. And that's how I started to get into music, like, properly. But thankfully, and I do mean this, thankfully, I didn't have any aspirations to play music full time. I just loved playing. I would be the last one to leave the session. And I would be putting sets of tunes together, five, six, seven rails in a row. I, and I had a fairly sizable repertoire of tunes fairly early on. I was just mad into it. And even though I had no interest in playing music for a living, I wanted to be a journalist. I just absolutely loved the music. You know, my dad even said to me one day, I was, when it came up to me leaving cert, he says, I'm locking your instruments away until you start studying for that bloody leaving cert. All you're doing is playing that banjo and I was like Jesus alright well fair enough by the time I was 14 15 everything in my life revolved around when I was playing the banjo and anything else I did was just stringing the moments of banjo playing and practice together going to school was only something I had to do before I could come out for lunch and play the banjo some people might have thought it was a bit of a laugh or something I took it very very seriously I saw this as a sacred tradition and I still do by the way I still see it that way, you know, whether it's bluegrass or whether it's, but particularly with Irish music, it's, it's hundreds and hundreds of years old. And I feel that it's, 
it's a sacred thing. And I'm not just being a big wanky Egypt saying that. Like, I, I genuinely do feel that, you know. When you got to that point pretty fast, when you was like, the only thing you wanted to do, the only thing you enjoyed was playing music. How do you describe that feeling? Quite simply put, it's like um, if you can imagine the feeling of peace you get when you're meditating or the feeling of focus you get if you've ever meditated, like your mind just clears. But add to that some feeling of sort of um, almost like a sexual energy, but like without being weird. <laughs> this kind of like, you know, you're really clear, you're really in the moment, but at the same time, you're excited and you're passionate in the same way you would be if you were having sex or if you were even looking at someone from across the room that like excited your libido. It's kind of like a mix, except obviously it's not like... Like I was playing the banjo and fucking getting on a bone or and do you know what I mean? But it's just a comparable kind of thing, you know. Well, I'm glad you said that, so I didn't have to. Does anyone else feel that? Not particularly. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, anyway. Niall, how did you learn to play? I went to guitar lessons when I was like, no, actually, I did a brief stint on piano when I was eight. The kind of structured aspect of that didn't really sit too well. I was learning scales, etc. It was it was just a bit too structured, kind of classical piano things. So I just didn't take to it essentially. I started then doing guitar guitar lessons a few years later. Actually, I remember my father's guitar was on a stand in the front room, but weren't really allowed to go in and like mess around with it. But I remember the start of Glen Row is the low E string and then the three top high string. It starts like that. It goes doom, 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 doom. And I figured that out one time. And then mom was like, okay, go to guitar lessons. I went to a guy called Tommy Lyons, who's a brilliant musician and taught half of Mayo guitar. He was just very easy going and made it enjoyable. That's kind of how I got into it initially. I probably learned the most by playing with other people. That has probably stayed with me to this day, you know. There's a certain amount that you have to do at home, but you needed other people to kind of push you. I was starting out playing with, like Luke's story, starting out playing whatever we could, chili peppers and blues and all that stuff. Had a band for years, and then it's just been band after band, and I think I've learned the most doing that. But it kind of comes back to what Lily was saying about music as a language. If you learn a language, you know, you're not just going to write it down and just speak to yourself all the time. You need to speak with other people. The same thing applies to learning music. You know, learn to speak it a little bit first. A little baby doesn't start learning about vowels and stuff. And one point I was going to add there was after playing music since I was 14, so it got to 15, 16 years, I've always found that I feel like I can improve a lot if I'm around someone who's a lot better. It's great to like always put yourself in uncomfortable territory, you know, same with Anthony. I'll start with this one on you. Niall, when did you start playing in public? I started playing in public with a band called Silver Circus. We were all in school and, you know, but they were all very good. We all brought each other on, you know, that kind of a way. There was a, yeah. a friendly competition, but um, we played a, a battle of the bands in Morris Town Hall and uh, we might have played the semi-final and got into the final and I remember I had this little short scale area bass that was a little small yoke we were all really nervous like we were playing Kings of Leon and Ken Lizzie and stuff like that and uh, the host of the evening who I think he also works as the caretaker in Super Value he uh, introduced the show it was called Bands on the Run and they played that song before we all came on and the town hall was fairly full I remember at the time it was a good few bands from the area came in and uh, I hit him as he was coming over checking if we were ready to go I hit him in the head with a headstock on the bait <laughs> and he started bleeding and, uh, I was like oh, are you alright and he was like oh it'll be grand it'll be grand and went on and introduced us we ended up winning it we were at the top of the town you know we went on to play in loads of and we probably shouldn't have been playing them 
at that age, but we went on to play loads of bars and um, biker rallies. It was a good schooling for gigging, you know. You come across a gig and people are like, oh, this is such a shit gig, but you'd be like, ah, no, it's not a biker rally, you know, in down, and it's minus seven outside. Like, it's not that bad. Are there that many of them in Ireland? There's loads of them, and they all arrive on their bikes and set up a big campsite out in a pub, out, you know, one of those rural pubs that you need to drive to, like 12 yeah. miles away from it. And they'd all find those pubs. They're class bike rallies. I had the privilege of joining. I was too young to appreciate them. I think I played one or two biker rallies with Niall actually, and they were amazing. There are these festivals that just aren't advertised that no one knows about that happen. You have to be a biker in the north with a class bike. Campsites and everything at them in the middle of Gort or yeah, Shannon Bridge. You know, that's those kind of places. Niall, you remember we played a gig at a biker rally near Gort one time. And we were playing Ace of Spades by Motorhead and we like did a little breakdown in the chorus where we stopped playing and there was about 300 people chanting the chorus to fucking Ace of Spades and it was amazing. It's the only time that's ever happened. (laughs) 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 Disappointingly, I don't remember that, but I should. I've never heard so many people singing Ace of Spades only at a Motorhead concert. That was amazing. What about for yourself, Paddy? I suppose the first time I would have been up on stage playing was probably, in terms of proper gigs, it would have been sometime in college because when I was in college in Limerick, I studied music. So I did a few gigs there for various different types of things, you know, and didn't really do any major proper gigs until I probably left college and mm-hmm. formed my first proper band, really. I graduated from college in 2004 then, and I was leaving in whatever it was, May. And in April, I got a message off a sort of a musical acquaintance, a very close friend of mine now, but at the time I would have known him through music, but we wouldn't have been that close. He said that they were looking for a banjo player to do a gig in France and with the potential of forming a band afterwards. And I was like, wow, okay, sure, go on. Yeah, I'll do it for that. Yeah. So we got together with the rest of the lads and made an EP and then went and done the gig in France and we played at a festival over there and then he came with the band and... That was it, you know. But that was probably the first proper time where I was uh, in inverted commas professional musician. Do you know what the weird thing is? The weird thing about it is this. I was always playing music and always very serious about it. And I even did it in college, even though I told myself I wanted to do journalism. I ended up doing the music degree. And even though I did all this, it was under the shadow of, oh, yeah, but sure, I'm never going to make it a living or a career. I'm just doing it because it's the easiest way to get a degree. But it was almost like music was following me all the way, just waiting for me to turn around and go, oh, actually, wait, I will focus on music. And that took, you know, as I say, until I was 25. And when I did do it, it all just made sense. Lily, what about you for that one? Do you remember when you started? Playing public. I guess, yeah, I kind of dabbled a little bit. Back when I went to college, I did an, uh, a course called Access to Music in Brighton, like a level four diploma or something. And we did performances sort of at the end of the year. That would have been the first time that I was on stage. And then I would also sort of volunteer at Glastonbury Festival to play a couple of songs sort of in the teepee field. That would have been my, probably my second experience. Your second gig was Glastonbury. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in the teepee field and a little teepee. Then, yeah, I took a bit of a hiatus from performing, maybe a couple of bars. And then I moved to Ireland and Luke was starting up a residency in the Leeson Lounge and uh, I was going to play guitar for them. So I'd sort of just started learning bluegrass at the time and I taught myself a couple of tunes like Redhead Boy and Salt Creek. I started doing the residency gig every Sunday there and we did that for about two years and that's kind of how I built up my ability to play really. Well, that was only recently. Yeah, that was 2017, so 2019. <coughs> it's very um, recently. 
And that was, yeah, I built it. was a long hiatus. It was, it was a long hiatus. <laughs> but Lily, you must have had some thought if you were studying music that you were wanted to do it to make a living or to be playing at least a part of your living. I didn't think about making a living, actually, at the time. I was just trying to kind of survive. Um, and the only thing that I was interested in was music. So there was no other option for me. So you weren't thinking too far ahead, more to the point. Yeah. Yeah. Now, when you were playing with Silver Circus, how many nights a week were you playing? Were you playing every weekend back then when you were a teenager? Well, at the start, no. But yeah, by the time we were 18, we were playing and every other week. Did you relatively quickly start thinking, well, like, this is just what I do? Probably I started out getting 50 quid a gig. But I suppose I just wasn't really thinking about the math. Because if you're getting 50 quid a gig, that's grand every weekend. But that doesn't exactly translate to, like, a good living if you're still getting 50 quid a gig 10 years later, you know. So at the time it was fantastic and even going through college 50 quid a week when you're in college is great from that you kind of would say oh maybe I can do this as a side thing there was always gigs were you thinking about doing something else when you were a teenager like that you wanted to do for a living Probably not when I was a teenager. No, I just wanted to do music. But I guess when you're just doing it, you don't really think that far ahead. Depends on the person. Luke, I'll ask you that same question. I think you kind of mentioned that first band you were in, the metal band, which is probably not an easy place to start musically. Like, it's difficult stuff to play. And I know Niall is from somewhere that's even more rural than you, as far as I know. How much opportunity was there for playing that stuff out in Boyle and around that area back then? Well, I would suggest that Niall is actually from a less rural... I mean, Caramars would be a bigger town than Boyle. So our first band was called Asylum Choir and we had uh, myself, my good friend Eamon Simon uh, on guitar, Ferdia Rutledge on drums and Arrow Bertham Booth on bass. And we were very fortunate to have that lineup because we were probably, there just wasn't very many musicians around. We had to kind of force Arrow to play the bass because there was no bass players <laughs> within a 40 mile radius of us. So we kind of had to teach him how to play bass on the spot. But he was from a kind of an English family that had moved moved to Boyle and uh, his mother was an artist you know and they lived in a big madhouse outside Boyle and they kind of were friends with lots of other English expats you might say around the area of which there was a considerable number who moved in the 70s and 80s for various reasons was it Margaret Thatcher or something I'm not sure but a lot of English people ended up in Leitrim and North Roscommon in the 70s and 80s and a lot of them brought their uh, punk music and rock music and and different elements of English music with them. So we used to play at uh, these like punk nights. One of the very first gigs I played at was, uh, it was a gig in Sligo town in a place called the Trades Club, which was like a proper music venue. But we used to go in and when we were 14 or 15 and play like uh, support slots on big kind of nights where there would be a big band over from England, proper punk band playing at the end. And we were very fortunate to have that because we played obviously metal music like in Roscommon so if it wasn't for those events we wouldn't have had anywhere to play but we ended up playing in various venues across Sligo Cooler Our House we played at a Leitrim festival called Leitrim Festival that uh, anyone might remember from that time which is a crazy big festival out in Leitrim with lots of electronic uh, rave music and uh, punk music it was like a conglomerate of those two things the area where I'm from is probably strong on traditional Irish music great musicians for trad but I'm more into 
into it now, you know, years later. But uh, at the time, I had no interest in that. And we played with a lot of English expats, actually. It just goes to show that there is some pathways for uh, frustrated musicians who don't want to play trad in the West of Ireland. There are ways out of it. Is it very strange to be into a kind of niche kind of music when you're living in a place like that? Is it difficult? Yeah, I mean, in particularly in my case, I wasn't playing any type of, you know, later as I mellowed out, I got into more popular music, but initially I was into very unpopular music. That's what the appeal of it is. You know something that other people don't know. Yeah, exactly. I had that kind of mentality when I was young. I liked the exclusivity of knowing something that other people didn't for some reason. Mules and Men got together in 2019. I know most, if not all of you, have been playing together for a long time on and off. What kind of musical careers did you have in between those years you were talking about and putting this band together? Were you all playing full-time or did you have other jobs and what was kind of your musical career like in between? Well, I think that me and Niall probably a different uh, trajectories in that sense. I played music as my sole source income for six or seven years since about the age of 20 or 21 when I finished a web development HTML course and I met a lot of bluegrass musicians in Dublin and started getting gigs pretty regularly where we got three or four sessions in various pubs like Shine or the Blue Light and then also we were getting weddings, corporate gigs, that kind of thing. I've never played in any popular groups. <laughs> Pub bands, speak. yeah. I think before we go on with the questions, just on the off chance that anyone from outside Ireland ever listens to this, the pub band scene in Ireland is particularly unique because it's like there was a committee somewhere one time and they decided there's going to be about 50 songs that every pub band plays. But I would assume in other countries, pub bands would have a bit more leeway and that they would be able to play anything that's reasonably popular and change it up a bit. But from my experience, pub bands in Ireland, it's literally like someone drew up a list, take 50 songs, admittedly all by popular artists, but very specific ones. You can't play any other songs by those particular artists and every single band plays them, so it's like a weird little world unto itself. Well, I might just come in there for a second and I'll give you a possible reason why. (laughs) Ireland has a very strong tourist industry and particularly of English and Americans. And I played on the tourist circuit for many years and you'll find that the songs that people play are the ones that get the most tip off those tourists. And if you played Whiskey in the Jar or the Galway girl already and someone comes up and says oh mate can you do go away girl and you go no you know you could be turning yourself out of a tenner tip there's a sort of a business end to it as well you know and the tips are the kind of the leaders on that one you know but you're talking about the trad scene I mean I'm talking about the pub band scene I'd say a lot of it's still to do with the public though you know I'd say it's just what seems to keep bartenders happy because if the punters hear the same stuff all the time they'll probably keep buying the point Luke you made a living for six or seven years playing bluegrass music he did that is an exceptionally interesting and surprising phenomenon and we'll get back to that in a second but first I'll ask Niall how many years were you making a living just playing music for before you joined this band? I'd probably be similar enough to Luke in that I played for about seven or eight years from the age of 21, 22 that was full time I mean but you unlike Luke you were playing more traditional kind of Irish pub band um, stuff no well I was playing a bit of everything really trying to get as many gigs with different bands where's the most work in Ireland for working musicians I mean apart from pubs and weddings of the obvious thing what else is there there's the country Irish scene that's a good one for making money mostly for the singers or artists themselves 
and then there's kind of the pop mainstream music industry but really it's all fairly low level like I mean was it Mary Coughlin or someone was on recently and she like gigs all the time yeah it was her she had a fairly median income but like she's a really hard worker and she releases loads of music etc but it just shows you there isn't much money going in music were you playing with some of those name artists like no I never really was playing with anyone of that level no it would have all been just you know working younger musicians trying to get going but would you have gotten paid with those kind of people starting off oh definitely not if i had a, a full spreadsheet of all the expenses and everything that went out it definitely would have just about equaled what came in your principal work for money would have been like the, the pubs the weddings and the country in irish which is one i forgot yeah i'm not really much country in irish but i did a good bit of weddings and yeah pubs whatever whatever was going really so look your circumstances are very unusual i knew and i know that maybe because it's connected with our tradition of trad that there is a fair bit of work for people playing bluegrass and what's roughly described or defined as roots music like all those different kind of traditional american styles that are kind of like the precursors to popular music there's a fair bit of work in that in ireland i'd say that's infinitely preferable to playing in a pub band because you get a lot more control over the set list yeah exactly that's where i found that i i would have been playing music passionately and as a result of just enjoying this you know I, I wasn't uh, ever thinking that I was going to play professionally like Lily when I studied music it was really only that I was being a bit of a dosser and I couldn't really think of anything else to do and I love playing music and I always enjoyed uh, the the spiritual feeling that you get from playing music and I've always enjoyed lyrics and words and, and that sexual connection yeah <laughs> uh, no actually no no for the record no <laughs> <laughs> you baby to it. Uh, but uh, I played in a, a pub band when I was a teenager before I went to college and well when I was in college as well but that was never something that I saw as doing to any degree that I could make a living from because the scene was terrible where I was from and unless I started playing Rihanna songs and Lady Gaga songs it was literally that was what you had to do if you wanted a gig in the nightclub in Carrick on Shannon you know so there was no chance in hell I was doing that no way but uh, myself and Niall in our last year of college got into the blue Grass, just as a result of um, he was listening to Bela Fleck you know with the Victor Wooten great bass player and uh, then that leads to the kind of the Punch Brothers and that kind of area of really like virtuosic progressive bluegrass you know I got into the Grateful Dead because I was into metal music and I was starting to mellow and get into rock music and then I was into very mellow rock music and Jerry Garcia is a fantastic bluegrass banjo player and mixed into the Grateful Dead's albums and sets that you would listen to was bluegrass and I really enjoyed this acoustic energetic music and it was linked to when I was growing up I had a neighbour called Colin Began who lived uh, next door to me who played bluegrass music I kind of uh, ended up getting a few lessons off him initially just to get an idea I, I learned whiskey before breakfast on guitar he taught me how to flat picket on guitar and uh, when I was friends with Niall in college uh, we realised that we both had an interest in this type of music and Niall was playing the banjo at the time a little bit like he had bought a cheap banjo and he was just picking around on it because he was into Bale of Fleck like quite a bit. We ended up doing a little duo with me playing like Doc Watson songs and Olden in the Way Jerry Garcia songs mostly. The whole set was pretty much comprised of Doc Watson and Olden in the Way and we played a gig probably 11 or 12 years ago in Balnafad, County Sligo We played to about 10 people sat at the bar drinking day pints you know and it was great. They were all faced away from us and they all muttered throughout our gig. They didn't applaud but at the end of the gig we got paid and the woman behind the bar said ah oh, jeez they loved you <laughs> 
in terms of how limited it is to make money playing in Ireland, playing roots music or trad, if you're into that scene, I'd say is infinitely preferable to playing in a standard pub band. Because a pub band, you have to play that handful of hits, whereas with roots, you're kind of, I'd say you're almost kind of like providing a feel, an experience for you to play more stuff you like. That was a huge part of the appeal. You've hit the nail on the head there. Because you can tell the first gig that me and Niall played playing Bluegrass, we played a load of Doc Watson and Olden in the Way songs, which nobody has ever heard. They're just unknown to the general public. Yeah, we got paid as much as we would have done for a pub gig. And we got to play in a quiet pub with acoustic instruments. Yeah. From that perspective, there was a definite feeling that well, you can express yourself. You can go out and do pub gigs, but you can also express yourself, you know, and you can play whatever the hell you want, as long as you've got nice sounding banjos and uh, mandolins and, you know, fiddles or whatever. You can get away with murder on them. The fact that your entire professional musical life has been playing that music and you haven't had to play stuff you don't like, that's pretty unusual, I'd say, amongst working musicians, right? You're the only member of the band who's had that. Well, no, not particularly. I mean, I've had to play stuff I don't like quite a bit as well. Yeah, but you haven't had to be in a pop band playing pop hits slash Wonderwall slash... Yeah, not really. Not Miss really. Side. Is that unusual amongst musicians you know that you've done very few gigs like that? Well, not particularly. I mean, Paddy uh, would have come tried back. Well, Luke, now in fairness, I've definitely played a lot of those gigs where I have had to play all that shit. And yeah, that's, so that's why, I guess. And I'm not trying to have it out with you now, but I would say at a fairly lesser extent than probably the majority of musicians, because to say the Temple Bar scene slash pub band scene is not something that you would have been involved in. You know, it's commendable that you've managed to make a living as a full-time musician, not really having to get your bread and butter from that. Whereas, like, for me, it was all of that. Like, 10% of the gigs I played were gigs I actually enjoyed but that's normal though yeah well I did a chorus like, Niall and no I've played plenty of fucking gigs with him every gig I've played has been improvisational and I've never been running through the arrangements of Stevie Wonder's you know uh, superstitious or whatever I've never had to do that for a living you know now and again maybe so maybe from that perspective you're right but I've definitely had to play what's the name of it Wagon Wheel you know three times in the night like you know when you're playing in Kilmaine in County Mayo and they want to hear Wagon Wheel again you, you, you'll do it. I didn't get away scot-free. To my limited knowledge, the root scene seemed to have, in Dublin anyway, it seems to have kind of sprung up at the same time around 10 years ago. Around the time of the financial crisis, in fact, there seemed to be this great revival in folk music in general, whether that was Americana or Irish traditional folk music or, or folk music from other countries. And it seemed to all happen at the one time. You had bands that were playing, say, roots music. You had the likes of, say, Rackhouse, Pilfer and bands like that up in the West. And then you had had bands in Dublin like your Vagabonds and you had Lancome or Lynch as they were at the time you had this kind of general folk scene reviving around 10 years ago and everything that sort of had the acoustic guitar with a nice voice or someone with dreadlocks or someone who didn't you know wash their hands or something you know it all sort of seemed to happen at the one time so I think that that they all piggybacked on each other in that one and it all became a very nice very vibrant scene you met up last year I know at least three of you knew each other for quite a while before when did you decide that you were gonna set about turning this into a band and you started writing songs maybe with the intention of writing an album so I suppose when we had that residency gig that we were playing, I've always been writing songs and Luke has always been writing songs as well. And I guess we got so many songs together and due to the fact that we were playing quite regularly, we wanted to sort of wrestle those experiences onto a more permanent fixture. So we did. We got together and we recorded an album, number one actually, which was about two years ago, but with a slightly different lineup. Then as we progressed, new songs were written 
really. And I suppose then we wanted to put more songs down. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so we decided to yeah, yeah, record yeah. another album. The current lineup between myself and Paddy and Niall and Lily, the special thing about it is that we kind of understand each other musically a lot. And that became very apparent through the several years me and Lily played. Me and Lily have played together in the Leeson Lounge for four or five years. Niall, I've played with him since we were in college, so a long time ago. And um, with Paddy, we lived with Paddy, and it became very apparent that we had a similar uh, enthusiasm for very no frills approach to bluegrass music. And Paddy writes songs as well. So we wrote together. We had a very similar idea of how the energy goes. Niall played with him so much that it's just this is perfect. We have a great lineup. It's my favorite band that I've ever been in, I think, and it's great. We're very happy with it. We've recorded a second album actually that's been mixed at the moment. The second album we've recorded is a, uh, an album of covers, of bluegrass covers, a kind of traditional material from the 1960s and 70s that we really enjoy. Uh, myself and Paddy in particular have a particular enjoyment of 60s bluegrass and 70s bluegrass from Maryland and... Uh, yeah, Washington DC and... Washington DC kind of niche style of bluegrass it's kind of like trad music you know people will talk about the Sligo style and the Clare mm. style with bluegrass we're kind of into the Washington DC style yeah yeah 1970s it's got a particular aggressive sound to it very encouraging of just liberal playing mistakes are uh, encouraged and just it's just generally it's the funnest type of bluegrass I would encourage anyone to listen to um, Buzz Busby Benny and Valley Kane, Johnny uh, Wisnant, <laughs> Johnny Wisnant, the country gentleman, the seldom seen, live at the cellar door, one of my favorite albums ever. Yeah, we recorded an album of covers of that kind of stuff, and we have plans to record our second album of original material after our first one in August there uh, next year. We have a lot of songs written already, and we just need this lockdown to end, I suppose, and we can get back into the studio again. I suppose I'm trying to figure out how much it was gradual and how much it was based on the premeditated idea of let's get really serious and form a band with a particular goal that we're aiming this towards something. I would imagine it was the exact opposite of that. I just flowed into it anyway, you know. You know, Luke and Lily had their thing going and the band was already there and it certainly happened in a very organic way. It was a very much an organic sort of creation, mm. but we do think a lot about wanting to not kind of sit on our laurels and utilize time and our opportunity on this planet to make music i guess that you know it's not all waiting for stuff to happen for all of you like before this is the first time i've mentioned this word before the pandemic was this band your primary attention at the time like what percentage of your gigs and time spent on music were you all of you spending on this group not much to be honest we exist on the periphery of popular music in ireland <laughs> unfortunately we have a good summer usually every year where we play the festivals around ireland and, and there's a market for bluegrass music in Europe. You might get a few gigs in France or Germany or somewhere, you know, but we don't really play much pub gigs together anymore. We'll just play festival gigs. So you're talking maybe 10 to 15 good gigs a year and that'd be kind of what you're looking at. I don't know, I haven't looked at the book, but that'd probably be it. We're playing our own stuff though uh, and we're not trying to tone it down at any point, you know, so we're happy with that amount of gigs because
because it uh, gives us a chance to express ourselves with our songwriting and whatever else. We're kind of happy with that level, you know. It works for a band like this, really, I think. What are the differences between typical paid cover gigs of any kind where you're essentially background entertainment and playing in a band like this where most of your set is original music? I suppose it isn't easy to separate those two as just two things. Like, there's a whole spectrum of gigs, you know. Obviously, the original ones are much more fun to do and you feel like you're doing something more authentic. Although a lot of the gigs that we did play with this band, for instance, I think the last gig that we played before lockdown was the wedding in, in a lobby in kind of a large house outside of Dublin. It was, yeah. And we were kind of background music in that, so there's a whole spectrum within this band alone. There's a lot more crossover than I realised. I've literally done every sort of gig under the sun. Like, mm-hmm. you know, me and Luke did very gigs last year. I remember doing gigs in France, like in a pub, packed with people and them all shouting and drunk and then I went home and I was onto the ferry with Luke for three days and we had the gas time and then we'd all go off to do a festival somewhere or something down the country and it could be really nice listening audience and no it's not happening anymore obviously but it was all happening that's what makes it exciting and enjoyable everything is different even the shit gigs are good because you're still doing gigs like I remember my brother said once this is his opinion in Ireland the difference is for paying a cover gig you are paid money to play to people who haven't paid to hear you who are not listening to you and when you're doing an original gig you're not paid money to play for people who've paid to come in and see you and are listening yeah. to you that's exactly yeah. what it is that's it's a great, a great way of putting it yeah, yeah exactly. that's exactly what it is so what's the experience like it's a lot yeah, more nerve wracking I mean you got people who are expecting uh, more of a performance you know in the pub you can get away with whatever you want to do especially you, know you, can't, you can't always well, this is just my experience you don't always get away with you know doing whatever you want to do I actually find the most stressful gigs I've ever done are the ones where you're down in town doing a gig and like you know a bunch of fucking 40 lads from Manchester come in and they're just there to kind of take over you know our football fans or whatever like you know even though you can kind of get away with it and you don't need to worry about it and you can just kind of suck it up and do the gig I actually find those the most stressful and even though like I suppose in a sense you just leave your pride at the door but in another way like I just find that people that come to pub gigs are not there to see you no nobody cares who you are what's your name or whether you can do all the licks under the sun they're there to hear their hits and they don't give a fuck who you are so they're the gigs I actually find in a way I wouldn't say nerve wracking now that's an exaggeration but definitely they have the potential to be more stressful for me now for me personally 100% you got that absolutely right they're not coming to see you but equally I think they care very little those audiences about the quality of the music they just want to hear the hits yeah they do and that's what I find stressful because you know that the criteria for those gigs is that you sing 30 songs that they want to hear and actually I'm not very good at those kind of gigs I mean I'll do them and I'll take them and I'll, and I'll swallow me pride and play them they're not the gigs that I'm cut out for there are lads there who can hold a crowd of 400 people in a pub on a Saturday night by just playing three chords on the guitar and singing those songs and doing a great job and I actually respect those for being able to do that it's not the musical thing you have to have an extra thing you have to be able to have the banter and you have to be able to give that energy to the crowd and to that type of crowd and you have to be able to give energy to a hen party in one corner a bunch of lads in another corner and a bunch of American people who are just sitting down trying to have a quiet point to Guinness and go home at 11 o'clock you have to work all that shit out you know that's a skill you know you can do that and be a really bad singer and guitar player and still get a great gig there every night now this might be very naive this might be a very simplistic way of looking at it because as Paddy and Niall explained being a working musician there's a spectrum of gigs but assuming the ultimate goal is to make a living playing your own music full time that you like at the moment presumably with this band is there kind of a plan 
or a pathway that would seem to exist for an original band playing the kind of music you do to make a full-time living from it? To be honest, not really. I am not of the opinion that perhaps it's possible through any kind of means other than just playing better and better music and making a better show of it, you know? My plan really doesn't evolve around any kind of marketing or anything like that at this stage. I'm kind of kind of just want to let the music go where it does, you know? Financially, in recent years, I've got a part-time job, actually, and I kind of support my income by working a part-time job that's away from music. So I'm in actually a nice position and I would recommend trying out this position if playing music full-time if it is leading to a lot of anxiety and a lot of problems is do get a part-time job or something because it really makes you have a lot more room for creativity and before I had a part-time job I uh, played a lot more pub gigs and gigs where I played music that I didn't like getting the part-time job allowed me to quit those gigs actually I, I quit a few weekly gigs that I was getting sick of that I was going out to and I was coming back home feeling shit played the same old bollocks that I play every week on the banjo hammering out pentatonics like an asshole like week after week <laughs> being able to step away from those gigs and focus more on playing at home again and go to work and make my money there and then come out and play one gig a week instead of four or five has been great for me and, and it's probably made this project Meals of Men a lot more successful in terms of creating original music and expressing ourselves artistically than had I remained as a full-time musician because I have more time for writing songs as a result of the fact that I have a part-time job I feel like I enjoy music a bit more again and also then have money to go to the studio and get them engineered, money to get them mixed, money to get it mastered, money to get the artwork done if you want to put it on Spotify, etc. So you need fuckloads of money unless you're good at getting grants off the Arts Council or, or that kind of thing. Original music is expensive and there's not a high margin of profit in it, definitely. <laughs> Sorry if that was a bit of a grim answer for you there. <laughs> This is your band. What kind of a goal do you have for the band? So as a result, what would be success with it? We just kind of want to uh, release original music prolifically for as long as we live, pretty much. That's uh-huh. pretty much the objective, is to create music and release it. Whether it does well commercially or not, won't be the making or breaking of us. Do you think that attitude is different to how musicians would have thought in the recent past because of how the music industry has changed? Yeah, maybe there was uh, more... Uh, you could have been sustained a commercial dream a bit longer you know uh, back in the folk revival or I'm not sure but I feel like it's already tough for people who are getting millions and millions of views on YouTube videos they're making F all as well so it's like if you're playing in a niche kind of area playing original music your chances for making a living I'm not sure what you need to do you know I don't think it would be social media or any of that kind of bollocks you know I think it'd be just a lot of luck a lot of talented musicians aren't making a whole pile of money from trad or bluegrass jazz or any of those kind of genres at the moment or even pop music I mean if you were to look at some of the top hip-hop and kind of more commercial pop artists in Ireland I wonder how much they're making are they making as much as Bono made in 1989 I'm not sure definitely not I suppose this question is for anyone who's never played music and has only ever worked 9 to 5 or even someone who's never been self-employed because I mean I know a lot of jobs these days even fairly normal jobs are very strange hours how do you compare the routine of playing music full-time to working in a traditional 
nine to five job is it very different and do you find it a very difficult way of life completely different and something that i struggle with on a very regular basis i explained earlier on how i didn't really think i even wanted to do music full-time and then i was working in a courier company as a basically a nine to five job although i was self-employed i was a subcontractor to the company but it was a monday to friday nine to five and i worked me bollocks off and I, and I enjoyed it i really really enjoyed it it was great because i was in a routine and like luke was saying when you're don't have to earn your money from playing music you can just pick the bloody gigs you like and i wasn't playing bluegrass at the time but i was playing a lot of trad i was in a band skipper's alley i'm still in the band that was the band i first joined in any kind of serious way and, and at that point we were kind of flapping our wings and we were getting gigs abroad and contracts with u.s booking agents and stuff that was the stuff i focused on outside of my job and i didn't need to worry about playing in pubs i didn't even know about the temple bar scene or anything and it was only that someone said to me i'm looking for a guitar player for a gig on whatever it was Friday night and there's nobody around is there any chance you'll do it and, and I just thought like you know I was working at the time but it was the weekend I wouldn't have been in work I said I'd take the gig and I did and I was playing away and she says uh, she says you sing God I forgot you sang and I says yeah of course I sing yeah 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 and she said are you looking for work and I was like no I've got a job I don't need anything like that and she said well there's loads of gigs going if you want them and it was the first time I even realised that I could actually make a living playing music and I thought Jesus I might give that a go actually so within like you know five or six weeks I handed me notice and I said I'd give it a shot and I was a full-time musician right up until the pandemic I never ever went back to it although I did dip me toe in the water with some jobs over the years like what Luke's doing at the moment a few days a week in a job but I did mostly make me living for music and I'll tell you what it was great because one thing I learned to do which kept my mental health in check which was a big struggle before I found out this was to use every gig I did which bearing in mind was you know 90% shite but using them to either practice new material new material could be like a new ballad or like a new banjo instrumental that i do in a song or a new technique a new chord shape i remember i wanted to learn how to use diminished chords a few years ago and i had no idea and i decided to replace every single five chord in one gig with a diminished chord instead and after a week i knew how to use diminished chords it was great so i started actually seeing gigs now as like learning opportunities that i was getting paid for but you know what i'll be honest with you i was drinking like fuck i practically drank nearly every night of the week i found it very hard not to surrounded by drinks surrounded by the crack it was very hard for me to not have a point and now pandemic's here and i'm actually in a situation now where i'm actually doing a course get a bus license and i might actually go back into part-time work again because like luke was saying i'm actually finding myself being more creative over the last few months of not being gigging all the time i've never been as healthy in terms of my diet and in terms of my relationship with alcohol being honest with you if i'd have went on the way i was going on the temple bar scene i think health-wise i would have suffered and probably creativity wise I wouldn't have tapped into the potential that I'm tapping into at the moment but that's me personally now you know everybody deals with it their own way I like the lads that probably haven't worked properly in a full time job haven't really done a 9 to 5 I did a short amount an office job doing some IT stuff but that kind of a life really wasn't for me I kind of like things that are changing always and that kind of reflected in my music as well I was always into keeping it kind of different but you know when you're playing Everyone else has their life and you're kind of an outlier. You're always awake later, naturally. And then if you're doing three or four gigs a week, you can't exactly go to bed at nine o'clock on the nights that you're not on. You just kind of settle into a, a life of gigs. And like Paddy said, you know, there's plenty of drink. It's just a lifestyle and it's great crack. It's a very enjoyable lifestyle, but it's probably not sustainable. 
Paddy said earlier on, he said there was a voice in his head telling him he was never going to make a living out of it. And that kind of put him off it for a long time. And that's a stereotype everybody associates with music. If not impossible, it's a very, very difficult way to make a living. It's difficult not only financially, it's difficult because it's kind of antisocial. It can have health impact because you're up all night probably being in unhealthy environments. But we've touched on this, but this is really the crux of the whole thing. What is it about it with all the downsides associated with it? that you're willing to make those sacrifices that you can keep doing it. It's a combination of everything each of us have talked about, why we do it. It's very hard to explain because it's personal to everyone, but it's just probably you could have numerous reasons. One reason could be what we were saying about it's nice to be doing something different and doing something that not everyone else is doing. Then there's just the magic of music and playing it with other people. The language, it's another language you can speak and you can play with people from all over the world. That's actually something that we've all experienced where you can meet musicians I've never even spoken to them before, but you can sit in on some mad jam session somewhere and still play music with. That's part of the reason why you do it. There's a million reasons. I could go on. It's like a journey, and I don't mean that in some wanky way. I mean, it actually is, you know, it's an unpredictable way of going through life and a way that, for me anyway, even though it's been unpredictable in some very difficult ways for me, it's also provided me with every single of the best moments I've ever had have been as a full-time musician, you know? Like the moments of playing gigs on stages in countries where you've got a few thousand people looking at you and they're there for you. Like, there's nothing beats that really. Like, you just don't know what could happen. As Niall and Lily already said, it it might not be sustainable, although ask Keith Richards. (laughs) But at the same time, even if I go into a bit of part-time work again, I'll never lose my interest in touring or traveling. I can't quite put my finger on it, to be honest. It's hard to put into words. It's just a kind of uh, an impression that I get from it that I feel like this nice impression of all the music, how it makes me feel and being part of it, playing it. It's very hard to put your finger on now. I would get that from playing very small gigs. Sometimes I fantasize about playing music in like hubs and stuff. Even my dreams sometimes of music don't actually involve like the Olympia or Croke Park. Sometimes I imagine playing in my hometown of Boyle, playing music that everyone enjoys, you know. <laughs> That's it, you know. I don't know what it is. I just... I just fucking love it. Yeah, it's great. Paddy, he spoke about being able to tour. That is a difficult question because sometimes I feel like I wouldn't be able to tour all year long and be happy in that lifestyle. It maybe is not my objective as a musician. Maybe I have more local aspirations. I think maybe sometimes I'm not like a global traveler, you know, in terms of wanting to play in every corner of the globe. And, you know, I'm very happy to express myself in my locality. (laughs) About the problem of touring and jobs, I do enjoy having a part-time job and the current part-time job I'm in is very flexible when it comes to touring and but I find it's easy to write and be creative in the job it fits very well but I don't think I could tour for three months straight I might get away with three weeks you know that's the kind of level I'm at like a big three-month excursion I probably couldn't do and I might turn down well unless it was a super opportunity when I initially came up with the idea of doing this interview with some professional musicians there was no such thing as the coronavirus it's changed everyone's lives but it's probably hit the arts and entertainment more than anything else so how's the last year been like yeah everything's changed for me anyway (laughs) as i mentioned there a couple of minutes back i was playing full time and my last gig was on the 15th of march and once the pubs closed obviously that was it when do we expect the entertainment business to come back 
and everybody was a little bit sort of like, well, holding out, I suppose, including myself. And people still are, you know, and that's cool, you know, hopefully it'll be back next year. But I decided that, well, first thing to say, I'm not good with social media. Not that I'm not good with it. I don't like using it. I just can't be fucked with it, right? And I'm not a solo artist, so I don't really need to be fucked with it. I saw a lot of stuff going online and people were doing all this kind of online stuff and we did a few live things online and stuff. But I just, I wasn't arsed trying to use that facility to try to keep afloat some sort of presence in the music scene. So for me, I decided to, uh, well, I moved to Donegal, but that happened more kind of randomly than that else. But since coming here, I've decided to do a course and do the course in bus driving. Hopefully I'll be a licensed bus driver by after Christmas. And do you know what? Luke's lifestyle appeals to me, you know, the whole kind of part-time thing, the little, as we'd say, a bit of scheming, you know. So I'd probably still be playing music full-time in the same way I was doing it in March if the coronavirus didn't hit. But to be honest with you, coming out of the other side of this with a bus license and a few fucking, you know, nicksters in bus driving around the Donegal Hill <laughs> while focusing on the music that I actually want to focus on is actually more appealing. Bad, Paddy, it's not bad style, I'll tell you. That's some good pragmatic uh, attitude there, Paddy. I love it. Actually, I've thought about getting a bus license for many years. Now I have the opportunity to go and do something uh, you know, while we're sitting around. So to summarize what I'm saying, the pandemic is shit for the entertainment and arts business. That's obvious. Everybody knows that. But it's going to come back. It's not going to be gone forever. It'll come back and we'll be all playing gigs again. And in the meantime, you just have to figure out how to do the best for your mental health. And for me, that's actually upskilling in something, Mary. Like, I was being creative and I was learning all the stuff back at the start of summer. But there's only so much of that I can do before I need to actually get a bit of paper or something you know you know I'm not really into that and really other than cars and music so there's people out there who are finding it very hard to keep their musical careers afloat during this time and are trying everything under the sun and unlike me don't have anything else that they might say ah oh, fuck it, I might do that or I might do this that would be a much more challenging position I would say well, not what you would know. Definitely. And the fact that we're young and there's people out there that we all know that we're living off their music and like then everything's gone and they have mortgages and families and stuff. So we're actually lucky that we can actually just go and try something new. I did a few online gigs like Paddy as well. I was doing a bit over the summer. Again, I was doing a good bit of practice at the start of lockdown. I bought a trumpet in Little. You know, I was getting desperate. So um, <laughs> baked a lot of sourdough, etc. So I happened into a t- teaching job in September. I'm doing a couple of days of that per week at the minute, teaching instrumental music to kids. I've kind of stumbled into another line of work and I'm actually enjoying it a lot as well. I've been lucky. I can see why people would keep with the music and try and hold out until it does come back, which it will, but I can't sit around and just wait for it to come back. You just have to keep going and do something else. As Paddy said, a very important point, do what's right for yourself and for your mental health. Pivot to schemes. Scheming is the way, whether it's bus driving, teaching, music, you know, have your finger in several places whatever gets you going and that is actually with the product of the world that we live in it's not even anything to do with music or the art we're just a product of the gig economy that young people have to be more diverse in what they do they say that we're all going to have five different careers I thought that was bullshit but I believe it Lillian Luke how about for you how have you been feeling the last year well I had a weird year I lost my dad just before lockdown so it's been a bit of a weird one for me you know it's hard to really describe music has been a great help and I've discovered lots of things been a a year of discovery and uh, intensity. I haven't been too adversely affected myself. I'm just um, thankful that I had that opportunity to be able to keep my job or uh, the business that I work for didn't do too badly. 
so I was able to keep my beans in order. Had a lot of time to write a lot of stuff and it's not been too bad, yeah. I'm just thankful that that's the case and, uh, you know, don't take it for granted because it's been a difficult year for a lot of people. This is the last question. So this band has made an album. You have a second one made and you're writing a third one. So assuming all goes well and there's an opportunity for live music again, I think all of you have said to a certain extent that you're all open to, at least, whether you're going to do it or not, continuing music as a part-time basis while doing something else. So with this band, what's the goal for it and plan for it for when it becomes possible to play music again? The goal at the moment is to record the third album. We have a lot of material that we're very excited about. We're kind of going for a bit of a 90s... Uh, rave kind of vibe with it. We want to make it like a kind of party bluegrass album. It's uh, something that I would think that would um, be welcome in the festival scene and I hope definitely to have gigs in a lot of the festivals around Ireland and Europe in years to come and especially next year and the year after. I, I just keep building momentum and obviously we have to write the best and record the best that we can but there might have to be some investment along the way where you have to get someone to get you in the uh, newspapers or in playlists or all the kind of marketing that goes into music that's quite difficult at this point in time you know there's a lot of people putting lots of effort into it it's a full-time job in itself we're going to try and record some good music and play some kick-ass shows some badass shit that's our objective you know really. and if there's any pr people listening in Shar, give us a shout there <laughs> Yeah, well, I feel like we do have something good here, you know, uh, something that not a lot of people are doing in terms of playing bluegrass music in a kind of style that's good for a party, you know, it's good crack. We don't play like, um, you know, very traditional stiff upper lip kind of bluegrass. It's influenced a lot by classic rock and, you know, all the music that we're a part of, trad music, all the different influences kind of merge in there and we were open to anything, you know, so it's something that I feel does have a place in the music scene in Ireland because it's kind of like badass acoustic music that no one else is doing a lot of acoustic music is uh, morose it's, it's very serious a lot of the like folk acts and you know that are doing well are you know they're serious you know you're talking about the famine here you know it's like <laughs> stop laughing shut up back there <laughs> so we're a bit of crack you know and i think that hopefully we can push that in a few years or next year that's basically the objective anyone got it to add to that just exactly what luke said just play some sweet gigs record some kick-ass bluegrass and take no prisoners essentially when it all comes back but in a very gentle way right i think that's everything so thank you very much yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> fantastic <laughs>